How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 98. What, you're doing your whole finger gun things right Pew-pew. there. Gee, very, I'm excited, Jake. You're very active. Just two episodes away, including this one, and then we hit the big 100. The big 100. Yeah. It's very exciting. We're very close. Do yeah. you think we're going to do any plans or anything special for episode 100? Oh, I guess we'll have to find out a little later in the week. Oh, Or maybe even later on exciting. this episode. Yeah. Either or. Either or. We All haven't right. really planned that part. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> How are you doing, Jake? Uh, I'm a little nasy, as you can hear. Um, this is actually really lucky, because about four hours ago, I literally couldn't speak. Like My voice was just completely gone. So what you're hearing out of me today is, like, amazing. This is a miracle. It's like Parasite winning Best Picture of 20, 2019. Yeah. It's exactly what... That's the equivalent is of how amazing this is. I can talk for this show. Well, that's okay, Jake, because this this week I did actually bring my A game and watched uh, a ton of films Whoa. in the last weekend. So I'll be able to take some of the reins off your sore throat. But before then, mm. this is episode 98, Jake. Are you ready for your 1998 film quote? I am. I'm currently four for four. This is so this, this is, is a, big a one. deciding week again. This is you've been you know back and forth this whole time, and it's you know it's it's interesting to see if you'll mm-hmm. come out on top. All right, well, all right. I'm curious. This is two characters. So the first line's one character, and the second line is another character. I will okay. try and differentiate the voices. Was nothing real? You were real. That's why. That's what made it so good to watch. Ooh. I'll repeat it one more time because I did muff it a little. Oh, you know what? Was nothing real? You were real. That's what make. What's what makes you so good to watch? I bet it's the Truman Show. Are you gonna lock in the Truman Show? I think it is. Jake Diagrella, you have taken the lead at five to four. It was the nineteen ninety eight yes. film, The Truman Show. I was certain you were gonna do a Big Lebowski quote. It was Big Lebowski. So or I was Truman. so prepared for that, but uh, but I did do a Coen Brothers film already. I'm pretty sure. Did I? Um, did I do Fargo? I don't. I don't think he did. Huh. I feel like I would have got Fargo immediately. But no, because that's the thing is it was in the clues when you said it was watching you. It felt real. There's all clues to exactly what Truman Show's about. So I was going to do a Lebowski film, and I was like, did I already do a Coen Brothers film? But now you're making me think I didn't do a Coen Brothers film. I don't recall. I could check. Yeah. But so I'm just I, glad I'm in the lead now. Yeah. I elected to do my second favorite Jim Carrey film. So there you go. Ah, of course. Of course. Fair enough. Yes. Fair enough. Um, very entertaining film. We're both sitting on the same rating, I think, for it on Letterboxd. So yeah. Oh, for Truman Show. Yeah, I, both sitting on four stars, I'm pretty I, sure. Well, the whole, this time, ever since I watched it, I really want to bump it up. I want to bump it up from four stars because it's a brilliant, brilliant film. Yeah. So I'm just tallying. I've actually managed to catch one, two, three, four, five, ten films. Oh my goodness! Not including the film of the week this week. Dude, you got, you got a. Mm. <laughs> well, hey, you know what? You've earned it because you've been working hard up and. I have. Up worked, until now. I'm currently sitting at 288 new films and/or documentaries or stand-up specials this year, <laughs> um, feature length. Projects basically, um, so I'm going to start with the most disappointing films, and I'll start with oh, one that okay. you've already caught. Yeah, we... I was going to say I think a lot of the films we watched this week we've seen 
Yeah. So I think there's going to be a lot of dialogue as opposed to, to monologues today, which is yeah, good, exciting. I, I do think next to all of these films, or at least a good portion of them, you've already seen prior to me. Cool. Some of them you've seen in very close succession to me. Mm. So, um, yeah. So I'll start with my most disappointing film. It's the Steven Spielberg 2018 release, Ready Player One. Mm. Um, so you've never seen it up until now. I have not seen it up until now because I saw the trailers and was not compelled at all to go see it <laughs> at mm. all because um, it really didn't appeal to me when it was playing in the cinemas and I was rightly so. So I watched it was an, an addition to Netflix a couple months ago and yeah, I think I was justified. I think we're both seeing all very similar ratings. I think I'm a little harsher on it than you are. Well, I just remember because I, I only talked about, I saw it for the first time and, and talked about it in the show maybe like 10 episodes ago, late yep. 80s. Um, and I just remember my main takeaway was, like, it's so reliant on, hey, I know that references, that it just it just took away from what I thought could have been a cool theme explored. Yeah, um, unfortunately, the film was an obsession with an error. And I think we were asking ourselves off the show, why did Spielberg pick up this project? Because it's a bit of a head-scratcher, because um, it's really, you know... Him and Lucas have been proven to use CGI, and they used to use it a little bit more sparingly in their earlier careers, but mm. have still been, you know, done some pretty poor um, CGI decisions. I know we talked about um, on the ET episode, yeah, some of the shocking uh, CGI placed in that film. Um, well, in the, in the remake or remastered, remastered version, version of it, yes. Um, and Indiana Jones was another example from Spielberg. And this film is obviously just pretty much pure CGI, um, or at least a good 70% of the film is. And it's not just that, it's just really bad direction, and it's really average to terrible writing, to be honest. See, I didn't think the direction was terrible, and I, I feel like the reason he took it is because he read the book that this is based on, and I don't know how similar or different they are, uh-huh. um, but I, I, I felt like, ah, oh, this seems like a protagonist that he's written in the past. Yeah. You know, you take away the backdrop, it it seemed and and that's problematic on its own, but it felt like a Spielberg protagonist, and yeah. I like that's why he decided to do that film. Um, I don't know. I I remember I said it before, and I'll say it again. I think this film would have been way better if it was more like a a Bill and Ted. Uh, well, they even reference Bill and the, Ted. Oh, do they? In the yeah, Which, At, um, the main guy, the guy who create Halliday, he references Bill and Ted. Oh. I mean, I must, I must have watched it before we did a Bill and Ted episode. Yeah. But I just remember thinking, like the, especially Bogus, Degas, Bogus Journey, Jesus yeah. Christ, um, the second Bill and Ted film, and how uh, I feel like that would have been more cheesy, the way they did it today, where everything's yeah. like cl- clean and CGI, and um, as opposed to there, where everything was so expressionist and it was so interesting. And I think Ready Player One would have been a better film if it came out in the nineties. Because they would have had more inventive production design, more inventive ways to make in that film. I think it's a tonally very inconsistent film too. It's got mm. like cases of domestic violence in it mixed in with sort of childish gaming and and on top of that it's got this this post apocalyptic dystopian world that's run by corporations in which the film final result, spoilers alert, leads to the uh, kids who win the contest to shut the escapism game down for two days a week to appreciate things in life when Mm. it contradicts literally the start of it where it's life's pretty crap and life stays ergonomically crap for a lot of people no matter what just because 
couple of kids win this Willy Wonka-esque competition, that doesn't mean the rest of the world is not a victim of this industrialization and corporation stuff. Well, um, it's very strange because I, I kind of liked what it was trying to do where, you know, people using this medium as an escape from the harsh realities of life, which absolutely. You know, a lot of us, do, especially in 2020, a lot of us have done that. Oh, it's been a huge um, part of this year. But then how corporate entities take over that and instead of becoming just a fun escapism, it's a it's a mode for corporate greed. And yeah. like those are all elements that are kind of looked at in the film. But I think it's hindered by like a very straightforward, kind of boring, you know, hero's journey, wins yeah, I mean, the girl. He, he really... Nerdy, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, the final result doesn't make a lot of sense because, yeah, he ends up with the girl and he can live a happy life two days off the, the gaming system. But other people in the life are miserable still, you know, and... If anything, that's kind of an arrogant and greedy ending for him. But I, I don't know. <laughs> it is. And unfortunately, it's like I'm trying to I'm probably overanalyzing a film that wasn't given even that much thought. Um, the funny thing about this film is the first ever time I remember and this is a real interesting introspective is as as a teenager, I remember my favorite podcast that I listened to, which was the Rooster Teeth podcast. One of the founders of that wished that if he ever had the opportunity to direct a feature film, Ready Player One was the one he always wanted to do. Mm. So I kind of find it funny that it ended up being, you know, he, they're a small independent filmmaking based in Austin, that this became a big Hollywood piece five or six years later after, I think he was saying he wanted to make it back in 2009, 2010. So it would have been interesting to see how that would have panned out if maybe someone a little bit more guerrilla had had taken on a, a project like this and right. didn't have as much money thrown at it. But yeah, it's like what I was saying with, with the, if it was made in the nineties situation, I agree. I think the fact that it was Spielberg and the fact that no one questioned the fact that he had all this money. Yeah. Um, it just, it was just a big like nerd vomit all over the screen and it was just so much nothingness. Yeah. I don't know. It just, that film didn't do it for me at all. It's probably my least favorite Spielberg film. Like at all. I would say it's probably definitely mm. my least favorite that I can recall off the top of my head. I think I probably enjoyed Crystal Skull more than I enjoyed that film. So, Interesting. And so, which, yeah. I'm not saying I enjoy Crystal Skull, but if I was to compare the two, I probably would take Crystal Skull. i got to rewatch all the Indiana Jones films, especially the Crystal I got Skull the, I got the I got the Blu-ray box set, mate. I can oh, help there you, you go. Um, okay, so bridging to another film that I know we've both recently caught. I think you caught this last week, or maybe even caught it within this week. It's the new Ron Howard release. Mm, Hillbilly Elegy. Yes. So this came out, because I read this on the show last week. This came to Netflix this week. Yes. And I tried to see it in a, in a theatre beforehand. Um, it was actually sold out, which I thought was interesting. I ended, uh-huh. I ended up watching Rams instead. But I hadn't. I wasn't too... Because this is like one of those, like, oh, it's in the Oscar race, but much like Ammonite, now that the film's out and people have seen it, People like, uh, I don't think this is gonna hit the list, and and I was kind of with that crowd. I was, I went into this film knowing that people hate this film, people loathe this film. Yeah, I probably didn't hate it as much as other people did, but I had, I did have a lot of issues with it. Yeah, I, I too also had a lot of issues with it. Um, I was left. I don't think I, I too, I don't think I hate the film. Mm. Um, but in terms of Ron Howard films, this one really just didn't. Quite. I mean, I talked about uh, Rush, which was his release from oh, yeah. five or six years ago, and um, I was kind of blown away with how much I enjoyed that film, and I really felt like 
he's a very up and down director for me. I th- like I can't pinpoint a style <laughs> aesthetic. I feel like once upon a time he used to have one back in the nineties and the two thousands, but I feel like he's moved away from that the older he's gotten and well he's like a Danny Boyle in a lot of ways. Yeah. Where he is hard to pinpoint. What's his what's the consistent thread between all these films? Yeah, and it's like we just talked about Spielberg and I, I do think there is a consistent um theme that you could equate to a lot of Spielberg esque films. Mm. But yeah, you're right. Um Danny Boyle and him are definitely more willing to throw at the he likes his based on true stories. Ron Howard. Yeah. He's a big um Well apparently I only read this, I'm not sure, but apparently he's doing a film in like Adelaide or Okay. Some some place in Eastern Australia, he's coming over here to do a film. So. Really? Yeah, I, I, it's another real like based on a true story, which is why he I remember when he really said that. likes real stories. Um, that's probably the only thing I can, including this film. And I just, um, I think I really turned a corner with Amy Adams. I wasn't a big fan of her in her earlier career. Kind of turned a corner, and this film it definitely feels like a pining Oscar sort of film, but. I'm sorry, I would not even give her a shoe in for this performance, unfortunately. Yeah, I think she's out of the race. And what's what's interesting, we've decided not to talk about this until next week, but the the festival sister, the the uh, award season has begun technically yeah. with the um, Sunset Circle Awards, and Glenn Close did get nominated for best lead actress, mm. uh, while Amy Adams got nominated for supporting actress, which feels really weird. That feels like the wrong. Absolutely. Order. I but mean, on the same toe, I also think Amy Adams didn't do anything special. And I special. would say Glenn Close is probably the best part of the film. Yeah. There, there's a specific... I don't want to spoil it, but there's a... The only parts of the story that I thought were really interesting, and they should have focused more on that, was the stuff that's exclusively just uh, J.D. Vance as a kid and Glenn Close's character. Yeah. Like, the stuff when they are alone at a certain point in the story, I thought that was really great. Yeah. But everything that led gonna... up to it felt like such filler. It felt like Amy Adams was in the film... Way too much. Yeah. Um, I think the film is too long. I think mm. the film, it, it feels it feels like an elegy. <laughs> it feels like an anthology. Mm. Um, an odyssey. Um, but yeah, no, unfortunately, yeah, I'd say the best parts of the film uh, are definitely the ones with Glenn Close's performance. She's she's superstar in it, pretty much. Yeah, if she, I feel like um, that's really the only thing I, I can see is... In terms of Oscar nominations, is her getting supporting? Although apparently they're throwing her in, in uh, lead. Well, probably think she's got a better chance. Maybe but she's not a lead in it. No, she's, she's definitely, definitely a supporting. Um, other than that, I thought the writing was kind of convoluted. I didn't really care for a lot of it. Um, yeah, it's it's because it's a non-linear narrative structure um, between G.J. Vance, who we should say is based on his autobiography book, and yeah. I don't think he wrote the screenplay, but you know, it's very much. It feels like it, you know, he was too involved in this film. Yeah. You know, even the way he's presented as, I well, don't know, it's, it's, the hero, I guess. Yeah. I, I, unfortunately, we well, we definitely won't be doing a week on it, so it won't be no, getting a title. No, I have episode. no interest to, um, to dive So in this is probably much. the extent of the conversation we're going to have on it. Mm. Um, it's just a bit disappointing. Um, but what can you do? I mean, sometimes these sort of based on true stories, they are real swing and misses. And I just don't see this film. It's much like Ammonite had probably a lot of people thinking it was going to be bigger than what it was. And well, just the names attached. Yeah. It's exactly what it was. 2020 has definitely been the year of those little <laughs> sleeper hits. Yeah, yeah I, I get yeah. Um, I mean, I, w- I want to point out as well that 
Um, I think a lot of the uh, criticism is coming from... Like, I've read articles from people saying, like, oh, this is the worst film of the year. I don't think it's that bad. No. I can name a couple of films that are worse than this, but a lot of it stems from people who... And this is going back to the book, not even this film, is that people have called it Trump supporter apologist text, as in the sense of, oh, this... Uh, this book is about the the kinds of people who voted for Trump, and we don't need this kind of text. And it's like I don't think that's a problem. No, All right, I mean, exploring... I don't think this film really explores political alignment. I think it. Well, it's about much, a culture. It's about it's a cultural the American thing. South, and yeah. the, then the the trickling effect that these families if, have on. If like, anything, from this a film what it's trying to do is it's trying to subvert and detail stereotypes, and for people to r- release articles talking about oh, well, this is an apologist piece. And it's like, no, this is an exploration of culture. And it's wrong to just shoehorn it in as, oh, well, they're just trying to defend their stereotypes. And it's like, well, the fact that they're stereotypes are the only way you identify these people in the first place is kind of what's wrong. And yeah, I, I think this film doesn't pull any punches with uh, its apologies. It's very exploitative of the problems in this culture, just as well as, uh, you know, the the success stories. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I've read that stuff as well. Of like, oh, it's exploiting this, you know, group of people for Oscar bait. And it's like, yeah, they are. You could argue that about but, a lot of oh, films. Oh, for sure. Many, 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 many films. Um, I, I just think the whole, like, oh, we shouldn't be trying to uh, have empathy for Trump supporters. It's like, just, just, don't, just you don't have to take it there. Because it's like, why not? Yeah. <laughs> why shouldn't we understand what the country's about? Absolutely. The other side of the country people don't know about. I don't so, know. I'm going to throw it over to you. What have you Okay. Uh, well, yeah, that that was one. Uh, he'll be the LG I finally saw. Uh, this next one you have you saw uh, a little while back, but I finally caught it. One that people have been telling me to watch yep. over and over again. The Social Dilemma, which is another 2020 Netflix yes. film. Uh, and, of course, this one sort of dives into the, the dangers of social media influence and um, not too dissimilar to The Great Hack. Uh, last year, that was more about Cambridge Analytica and how that influenced the election and stuff. Uh, this feels like a, a much broader ex- exploration of of those themes of of social media and in these apps and how they take your information. Yep. I actually thought it was a better doco because it. I it's, agree. Yep, because it's a wider exploration of that. Um, I recall. Well, actually, I'll first say I thought it was very clever that the interviewees they picked were people who have worked for Facebook, who have worked for Instagram and yep. Google and um, in, who were in Silicon Valley. I, I really appreciated that. It felt more authentic because these people who know how the system works are talking about it. Yeah. Um, the one thing I recall you saying that you liked this and I did not like this at all was the sort of dramatized, the dramatization sort of reenactment quote unquote segments. Yes. That's like a narrative wedged into the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, about this family and how the kids are influenced by social media and and the phone's addiction and okay. I just I hated the execution. I thought it was so, uh, what's the word? Like not not even pandering, but just it just felt like a really preachy bad episode of Black Mirror, and it did not need it. It didn't need it. I liked when it went surrealistic with the sci-fi overlords, like oh how are we going to insert this ad into the thing? I thought that was clever, but. Mostly didn't need any of that. Interesting, but you liked it. Didn't I did you? like it. Mm. I did like it. I thought it helped bridge. It was a good way of saying because it, it wasn't reenactments. It was a correlative narrative to correlate to what they're saying. So I helped. Mm. I thought it helped reinforce exactly what they were saying. Um, so I'm not a big fan of reenactments in films, but narrative parallel. That's that's a little different. 
Yeah, I I just think it, it just felt unnecessary, especially like when they they're comparing the narrative story they're telling us of, of like the, the riot that's out first versus the real life footage of riots. It's like you you have the footage of, yeah. of real life riots that is way more devastating to watch because you know that's real. That's true. That's I, why I, the ending I of Black Klansman hits so far. But like I like I do think the riot stuff was a bit hokey, but mm. I thought everything leading up to the riot, the stuff, the dynamic of the family in the household right. was was interesting. I uh, would I would be more willing to watch that if it wasn't a part of this documentary. Yeah, okay. Um, I think that's where I stand on that. Yeah. Um, anyway, but yeah, uh, another one I caught this week, also a 2020 film, uh, was Palm Springs. So... <clears throat> the Andy Samberg one. Yeah, yeah. So this... I remember this was notable because I, I was huge into the Oscar race last year. I was mm-hmm. watching all sorts of videos and I was following like Collider and YouTube and stuff. Um, and they put out a video in the middle where they saw a bunch of Sundance films, which is cool because now they're all starting to come out. And it's like, oh, I remember hearing about Never Rarely, Sometimes mm-hmm. Always, like 10 months before we finally got to sit down and watch this film. Anyway, this is yeah. um, pretty much the big film that everyone was talking about was Palm Springs. And, the, and people were laughing because it... It became like the biggest acquisition in Sundance history, and I think Neon and Hulu bought it for, and I'm not joking, seventeen point five million dollars and sixty nine cents, making it sixty nine cents more than the previous record holder. So I don't know what that's about. <laughs> Sounds like an Andy Samberg kind of joke. Uh, yeah, I know. It's like, did he just buy the film himself? What's <laughs> what's going on? Um, so it's been on my radar for a long time, and, and it's on Prime. So before I got rid of my Prime subscription, I was like, i got to watch this. Um, I liked it a fair bit. I think I think narratively I got a little... Eh, how do I put this? Okay, look, I'm, I'm positive on the film. It feels like a very snappy, comedic combination of stuff like Groundhog Day and Triangle and yeah. like all these fun films. I don't want to spoil too much, but it has a really pleasing like aesthetic the look of it. I think the editing is like really impressive. Mm-hmm. I would love to see this get like editing nods. Um, and I thought that there was the great chemistry between Andy Samberg and uh, Kristen Molotiv. Uh, Melody. Melody, thank you. Um, I thought they were both great. I didn't realize she was the one from Black Mirror in the US. She's the mother in How I Met Your Mother. Ah, no, you're right. I did read that. Good pickup. Um, yeah, I thought that was all great. I, I was a little disappointed because of how unique it was feeling i was a little disappointed by how uh by the end i was like ah the narrative sort of it fell into that trap where i was like ah well it it just it it became so what's the word i'm looking for like it it lost steam by the end i feel because it it sort of became this predictable third act i don't know um but i thought everything leading up to that was like really well done i thought it was a fun film uh, no, but yeah. okay. Well, following up from your uh, mm. uh, comedy, uh, comedy caper, the uh, one of the I'll pair the next couple together. Um, so I caught uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall for the first time. Oh yeah, um, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was funny. Um, that's pretty much all I got to say about that film. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's um, funny. Yeah, I was, it's a. It feels like a Judd Apatow comedy. It's actually not directed by Judd Apatow, but it. Oh, I thought it was. No, it's. Uh, Directed by Nicholas Stoller. Oh, interesting. Who also did Get Him to the Greek and the Bad Neighbours movies. Oh, there you go. Five that's, not a, that's not a bad career. No. You're proud um, of that. Yeah, I found it funny. I like Jason Siegel's performance in continuation. Um, <laughs> I managed to all, like, also catch uh, a documentary about uh, Stefan Marbury, 
who is one of the peak NBA players in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, a kid from Coney Island. It's a oh, 2019 yeah. release that uh, just came to Netflix. I found it quite enjoyable. Uh, nothing too outstanding to note, though. I do like my sports documentaries. Um, uh, I'm going to have to power through these because I watched so many this week. Yeah. A yeah. <laughs> um, couple of American, uh, sorry, uh, action, sort of action drama pairing. I watched Wanted for the first time. Ooh, uh, I, I always, once it was one of those films, like along with Step Brothers and all these other things that came out in 2008, that, like I wanted to watch them, but they were MA, so my mum wouldn't let me watch them. And I didn't d- realise the curving bullet stuff was wanted. So when I watched... Yeah, that was a big thing in the trailers. Um, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a bit... Uh, <coughs> a bit too... It kind of felt like the, the Kingsman before Kingsman. In, oh, interesting. Because of its high kind of octane, slow-mo fighting stuff. Is it not like more edgy dark than that? Yeah, it's a little... No, it's just as hyper-violent. I think they're pretty... Uh, yeah, it's a bit more edgy. Okay. Takes itself a bit more seriously, but I think there's still hokiness in it. Um... Fair enough. Yeah, and I also caught American Gangster, the Ridley Scott 2007 release for the first time. Really enjoyed that. I thought Denzel and Russell Crowe were a really good pairing together. Um, they play off each other really well. Um, but the probably the two most important things to note this week, other than the film of the week, is I watched an Australian release film by Screen Queensland. Uh, I found this in an op shop for a dollar, uh-huh, okay. uh, which was a Nicole Kidman, Colin Firth release called The Railway Man. Okay. Um which uh, they did um sacred deer together, those two. Uh, Tipitsky. Sorry, uh, Nicole Kidman and oh Colin. Wait, Colin Firth. Or am I thinking yes. of a different? Oh, sorry, I'm thinking of the other Colin. My bad. So Tipitsky uh, has directed <laughs> films such as uh, the Burning uh, Burning Man, uh, Churchill, and uh, so nothing too crazy. This is his most well known film. Uh, this was commissioned by Screen Queensland and follows. Uh, sort of the PTSD of a World War II soldier mm. following the attack on Singapore. So it follows more Australian soldiers, Australian-British soldiers. So You know Colin Firth was in The Christmas Carol, the animated one with Jim Carrey? I did not know that. <laughs> I, I, you know it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I found it quite enjoyable. Um, it's always nice to see a screen Australia or a screen state pop up. Mm. So um, I was intrigued and... Pretty entertained. Had some really good performances from Firth, uh, Kidman, and uh, Stellan Skarsgård. So, Very nice. Uh, but the film of the week I really want to talk about before the film of the week, um, I also caught Hot Summer's Night, which was a Timothy Chalamet. I was going to say, I have I had this on in the background at a party once, but I never logged it because I feel like I never, I wasn't watching properly. <laughs> yeah. I don't have much to say about it. I thought some of it was stylistically really impressive, but mm. some of it also dragged, and I thought... The plot was very juvenile. It wasn't okay. for me. Um, the other Timothy Chalamet <laughs> film I caught this week, um, and one of the two real standouts of the week was I caught Call Me By Your Name for the first time. Very nice. Um, and obviously, I've talked about a little bit on the show, my delving more into the DOP territory, and obviously after hearing this whole film was shot on just a 35 mil, mm. that was quite curious to me. And I was really impressed by it. I mean... I think every time I see Army Hammer in a film, I find him more and more engaging. I like Chalamet. I'm still not completely sold on him yet. I think he's... I've enjoyed most of the films. Like, I did enjoy him in Hot Summer's Night and and Call Me By Your Name and Lady Mm. Bird, but I'd still need that one from him that's really going to get me on board with him. But He did a film, I forget what it's called, he did a film with Steve Carell that's apparently very good. Oh, The Way Way Back. No, not Way Way Back. Um, It's a different... It's only a couple years old, I think. 
Oh, okay. Um, no, the way, he's not in the way, way back. Oh, okay. I well, think I, that was my guess. Right, right. I can't. No, I it's, a, it's a different it film. Out. Apparently, it's very good. I'll, I'll see if I could find it for you real quick. Mm. Um, but I remember I watched Call Me By Name about a, maybe a year and a half ago. We, it, I definitely talked about it on this podcast. I couldn't tell you what episode. But I also remember being very impressed with the the cinematography. I thought it was excellent throughout. Yeah, and, I mean, I like him yeah. in, in Little Women and and King. I did catch earlier this year, and thought he was quite entertaining in it. But I still haven't found something that I'm really fully on board. Mm. Have you? The film got... I'm thinking of is Beautiful Boy. Okay, apparently that's an excellent film with him in it. So maybe it's his, his sort of deadpanish delivery that he has. Um, that I'm not completely uh, sold on, but I think uh, he was really solid in this film. I think the film's pretty excellent. It feels like kind of classical cinema mixed with more contemporary concepts. So, um, and yeah, I just really enjoy watching Army Hammer and stuff. To be honest, mm. um, I like his his. I like both their range. They're both willing to do different things, which I find very interesting. Um, but the the film I really want to talk about is another new Netflix twenty twenty release, Jake. Uh, but do you have anything else you'd like to add? Before? No, I'm I'm up to date, sir. Oh, okay. You can go ahead and um, this tell was, me about this film. This was the Rada Bank, uh, Rada Blank, uh, directed, written, and starring in this film, the forty year old version. Um, the forty year old virgin Zeke. Uh, version. Oh, version. I think they're trying to trick people and they're clicking on this I think film? there's a play to the title, yes, for <laughs> right. sure. Um, and it's about finding your own voice. Um, so I'll read the logline for you. Desperate for a breakout as she nears the big 4-0, struggling New York playwright Rada finds inspiration by reinventing herself as a rapper. This film's really interesting and it kind of pulls mm. back to the kind of handheld. I think this film's all handheld, which I really am a sucker for something that's grounded in the real world and it's in black and white and it really, it's a really good debut for this, uh, this Rada Bank. Um, it kind of grounds, uh, two worlds that you wouldn't obviously assimilate together, rap and, and obviously theater. And the, I find it very intriguing because of putting those two worlds together and, and kind of cross-culturing the African-American sort of demographic and minority reading. And, um, it feels a bit like, the Hamilton that they released this year. I could say that that's probably... kind of is a melding of all of those things. Yeah, and it's a really entertaining film um, from start to finish. It's sort of got the the Francis Ha aesthetic mm. of, a, of a Gretel Gerwig film or a Bombac film, but has its own unique voice, ironically. And um, yeah, I wouldn't recommend this film enough. This is one of those films that... I wouldn't call this a hidden gem. This is not a Blue Jay situation because it's pretty put out there on Netflix and it is getting already a little bit of buzz. So, um, okay. I, I certainly haven't is, heard of this film before. This is, so, yeah. a, this is a film that I think we'll be talking about in definitely the coming months at some, some of those awards, maybe the, the independent film awards and stuff like that. Stuff that gave unju- uncut gems, the attention. I feel like some of oh, like yeah, this would like critics choice. And yeah. Critic that, choice. All that like jazz. That. Cause it's, it's very entertaining. It's funny. Um, it's got moments that are really moving. It has a very good cast and some really amazing performances and mixes that, that comedy and desperation line pretty perfectly. Mm. And captures... it, also, uh, it also premiered at Sun, Sundance earlier this year with Palm Springs. So there there we go. Um, yeah. So uh, I wouldn't recommend that one enough. But that's all I've watched this week. That, that's all you watched. Well, I think Can't it's wait nice... to be next week and not watch anything. <laughs> 
Well, I think mean, I think that's a nice contrast to uh, our career updates. We're going to transition to which, to be fair, we actually have a bit to talk about um, between the two of us. Yes. Um, so I guess we'll start off with uh, we we talked about it last week and and really over the last couple of months is you've been working on three distinct films, yes. uh, two narrative shorts and one doco short. Mm-hmm. Um, and this past Friday at the Futurism event in Murdoch. Uh, we 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 kind of we said it last week that we were hoping at least two of the three we could show publicly, and that's exactly what happened. So. Yeah, so two out of three made it to the showcase. Um, we're very proud of all three, mm-hmm. and how all three ended up. I managed to show you the third one in its final completed form just with, before with this the podcast. Music and the grading, and everything's um, there. And obviously, you've been there to liaison a lot of all three of those films as they've moved through their post production process, but. Yeah, it was really nice. Our documentary, Brain Aneurysm Survivors, and our short film, Cascade, which was the one I shot, and then Brain Aneurysm Survivors I first AD'd and, and edited, mm. um, both got to sh- show on the main screen and the sideshow. Very nice. So, sideshow podcast. Yes. <laughs> and we were really proud of how both of them ended up, and we'll be looking to push definitely the, the shorts at some festivals. Mm. Um so, uh, in the documentary, it will probably go back into the loop for a slightly longer version, um, right. more attuned, but yeah, um, we're ready to just keep moving now. It was really nice to take a couple of days off and actually start writing again and getting mm. back into what's the next project sort of mindset, because it's an itch that we can never stop scratching basically. <laughs> oh, he's going to get back. No, well, congratulations. Zee. Thanks man. Three new films on the... Out, out of the oven, I guess, for the yeah. most part. And yeah, they're just go. cooling down now. They're cooling down. But ready it's to be gobbled still up. cooking. Gobbled up by the world. Um, okay, cool. Well, I, I attended the event. Um, I've still been working on the Work From Home, the short film. Uh, since our last recording, I did days 9, 10, 11, 12. And we've only got two more shoots this weekend, and then we can wrap the film. In the post. In the post, because uh, it's a big one. It's <laughs> a big, big, big event. It's, yeah. it's one. Of, we'll talk about this off the air but it is one of those things and I had, I had a similar feeling with Disconnected and then I'm getting it again it's so rare with shorts where you shoot on so many different locations and you go to so many different things it feels like to, a bit of a world tour in, in a little bit yeah I mean you know like we, we go to Perth to get this pickup in this hotel and then we go to Midland and we get you know this pickup here and then like we're sort of all over the map yeah. And, you know, when you get to this point in the shoot where you're so close to the end and you think about all the locations and all the, the actors that have come in and out to either do extras or side characters or whatever, you think about how much effort and work's been put into it. Mm. You're just like, wow, like, this could really come out great because you just think of how it's all going to show up on screen and yeah, it's all going to be, you know, uh, put into this, like, 20-minute thing that is all, mm. what's the word I'm looking for? Like, compiled and compressed into this little film and I, I, I don't know, I have a really good feeling about it, Zeke, so it's very exciting. Well, I'm very excited to see where that goes and when that pops up. Yeah. I'm sure you'll be uh, here to tell us about it when it happens. For sure. And and the last thing is that, and you've seen this, the uh, when I did my shoot on The Raven a couple of months ago, they uh, the Propel UFARTS WA finally put out the one-minute reel that I edited for them. Uh, so that's out now. You can watch the one-minute video of just, just the production behind the scenes, like a little montage video of everyone working. and um, It's cool. People, I think people are digging it. Yeah. Also very excited to see where that film goes. Yeah, I think that's definitely close to the punch because it's been editing for a little longer, so yeah, no it's all happening. Well, it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week of the show, Zeke, we're watching 
The Farewell. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. When Nan is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. Billy's family returns to China under the guise of a fake wedding to stealthily say goodbye to their beloved matriarch, the only person that doesn't know she only has a few weeks to live. Beautiful. Mm. Uh, so this is Thank one of you. our favourite <laughs> films from last year, Jake. That was pretty snubbed at the old Oscars. Speaking of the award season, yeah, no, it um at the Oscars, it, it, I'd say along with Uncut Gems, probably those two films were snubbed the hardest. Um, in all fairness, Aquafina did get a Golden Globe for her performance, which is as well she should. But yeah, we'll elaborate a, a bit later on. Very well earned, I think. Um, yeah, we both watched this towards the end of last year, I believe. Yep. And um, I actually caught it, I think, at the start of this year. Oh, okay. That's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, d- definitely around the same time period that we saw it. And I don't think we ended up talking about it all that much because by the time that you came back from America slash Canada, yes. we just had so many films between the two of us to talk about and we had to jump right into the Oscars talk that we sort of ended up, <clears throat> excuse me, skipping over this film. And re-watching it this morning, I was just, I mean, I, I love this film. As already, and I and I had really great memories of it throughout the year. Rewatching it, I was just shocked at how much I missed, how mm. many great details are in this film that I only just sort of picked up on. I was like, this film is just excellent, excellent, excellent film. Yeah, and I'm really glad that we finally given it a spotlight, albeit a year probably too late, mm-hmm. but. Um, I'm really glad that this has gotten. Uh, we get to give it a little bit of spotlight and a little bit of love here, because um, obviously, in terms of uh, sort of the foreign film dominance of the Oscars, uh, la- like last year in the Oscar season and just the season in general. I mean, it was mm. it was definitely a big spotlight. Obviously, with Parasite being sort of this eclipsing success, that films like this didn't get as much praise as they probably deserved, and maybe in another year probably would get a lot more praise. Yeah, uh, I, I agree in the sense that last year was just like ridiculously stacked. Yes, it's a brilliant year for films and. This it got it went under the wayside in terms of that attention. Yes, so, um, yeah. but obviously, yeah, I think this film has been pretty critically praised. It's sitting on very nice critical reviews, and it's rightly so. It's a really tight story. It's a really mm. personal story. It's it's a culturally enlightening film for Western audiences like you and I, and um, overall, it's got just some really solid, great performances too. Yeah, I think I think what's so understated about this film is that uh, Lulu Wang, the director, mm-hmm. this really, it feels like a film that really only she could make. Yeah. I can't imagine anyone who's making a film that hits on this personal level, that mm-hmm. says so much about sort of the, the cultural clash between the East and the West audiences. And I don't know, it, it just, it feels like it really hits the nail on the head in terms of that representation, but also um, the the... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the universal themes of the relationship you have with with your grandmother. Yeah, oh, and just your extended family altogether. Your the family mm. dynamic between all of them, um, and obviously uh, a lot of things that I found very engaging on my first watch with this was that cultural explore- exploration. I mean, I don't have any uh, friends that are a part of you know who are Chinese or have you know 
uh, her, you know, heritage, Chinese heritage, you know. So for me, this was a very intriguing sort of concept in general because I haven't been exposed to that culture. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's funny because I've sort of had, even though I don't, I'm, I'm not from a Chinese background, but I'm from a Portuguese background. And yes. the fact of the matter is like, to put it bluntly, it, it just feels the same. Mm-hmm. Like comparing my wider Portuguese family to this Chinese family, it like every little detail they put in, and this is from stuff like, you know, the way they sort of nitpick at each other's weights or, you know, shoving food down. Like, all of these little details, like, every single one of them I could point to and just be like, yeah, this feels like my extent. when I go to visit my grandparents or, you know, the wider Portuguese family that I come from. It's it's so spot on. It's ridiculously spot on how good it well, translates. It, it really captures the also the family po- politics and the conflict of perspectives mm where culture clashes with personal relationships and we're left with this interesting dichotomy of of uh, the emotional uh, emotional and the ethical versus the moral sort of battle that particularly our main character, Aquafina, who is definitely the bridge between the two worlds of the Western world and the and this this sort mm. of Eastern um, world and this culture because she is the most i mean she's the only one with a american accent she's coherently um you know chinese american like that's what she is yeah. and whereas there are characters from her family that can only speak chinese yeah. uh, particularly the older characters and even her parents have chinese accents although they can still speak english yeah well uh, like they made the move to america but they didn't grow up in america no. so the accent they they kept their accents and and they still talk more in, in Mandarin Chinese than they do in English. Yes. So I I think you're right. The fact making your protagonist in 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 Billy in Aquafina, um, having such a strong foot in both worlds, it actually helps us as Western audience to understand where the dramatic tension comes from in this film. Because rewatching this since the first time I watched this film, I watched a film called Departures. Mm-hmm. which is a Japanese film that I think it, it won Best International Film over a decade ago. And what was so fascinating is I talked about that on this show and, and how I was confused by one particular aspect of that film was the main character is scolded and shamed by his friends and family for taking this job in, in Kofferment, which you know I'm not going to get into it, but I was really confused by that. I was like, why are mm-hmm. people shaming for this job? It seems like a fine job to me. And what this film does so well is because we're presented this ideology that only Eastern families have perhaps, or, or this Chinese family have by seeing it through the lens of Aquafina's character who grew up in a Western culture. It eases us, the audience into understanding why there's any tension at all. It's like, well, why won't they tell, you know, the grandmother that she's dying? Mm. It's like, no, we understand why, because we're eased into that culture. Yeah. We're explained to these, these sort of points and, um, there are only really few films that I can think that capture this level of uh, sort of cultural exploration. I think the the reason why Parasite added, if we were to compare Parasite and The Farewell, which is obviously mm-hmm. a South Korean film, means a Chinese film. <laughs> yeah. Um, Parasite has universal concepts. It has um and a universal language being spoken through its meanings and it's what it's trying to convey. Mm-hmm just taking place really on a South Korean backdrop, which I, th- whereas this film 
is showing the difference, the polarizing differences between the worlds, but also the you know, and helping us as a Western audience consume that easily. Mm. Whereas, um, I think I mean it comes back to literally the fallout from Parasite. They're making an English version. They're making an Americanized version of it. Right. Um, a Western version of it, even though, as we've discussed on this show, that's unnecessary because it's such an easy consumable film. I mean, the only difference is you're reading subtitles, really. Um, whereas the one inch barriers, <laughs> literally, yeah. Whereas this this film is not trying to be a Western film. It's trying to actually show the contrasting differences, and not to say one's good or one's bad, but to show that there's just differences and why mm. there is animosity between those families that migrate to these English cultures and get assimilated and into those English cultures and, uh, into, in some eyes, in, in Chinese culture, abandon their families. Yeah. And, you know, then they become two isolated cells, really. Um, it's interesting because the, the emotional way and, and the universalness of this film comes from the family and, and the character of the grandma because, you know, we all have grandparents maybe not all of us got to know them like i didn't i never got to meet my grandfather on my mother's side yes but you know i think we all for the most part understand what that relationship's like and in some ways a lot of people have stronger relationships with their grandparents than their own parents yeah and i think that's quite prevalent in this film because uh from the set like from the offset um aquafina's quite dejected towards her father she's not um they're not. They don't hate each other or anything. They just no. don't relate to each other very well. Um, they both have different sort of ideologies and ethics. And honestly, she probably gets along with her grandma above everyone, really. Who is this kind of kind-hearted, no-nonsense sort of woman, who's mm. very much uh, quite blissful in her old age, and which well, it's, makes it's the sweetness that they have for each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it does it and for us as the viewers it comes back to the fact that we know we have objective discourse on this narrative. We know what's wrong with the grandma as the viewer and that makes us feel what Aquafina's feeling, which mm. is an incredibly effective empathetic uh narrative device to basically make Aquafina our bridge between the narrative and and the culture. Because, yeah, exactly. It works on both levels, really. Because when we're feeling what she's feeling, we as the viewer can empathise with that immensely to mm. near-perfect levels because it's a perfect direct line of communication between screen to viewer. And like you said, there's a moral exploration here where, you know, as a Western audience, we're watching this film and I imagine the majority of, of the people that I would know to go watch this film are siding with with Billy, the character of Billy. They're siding with the idea of, oh, we should tell... Well, she has a right to know. Yeah, she has a right to know. uh, She should know. And I think this film does such a brilliant job at showing both aspects. And there was one thing, um, the thing that surprised me more so than the details I didn't pick up Mm -hmm. on my first viewing, was I remember very specific criticisms I had, and I pretty much dropped them all on the second viewing. And one of them is completely to do with... uh, the ideology that this film is blending through, whether do we tell her or do we not tell her Mm -hmm. that she's sick. And it all has to do with the last shot of the film, which we won't talk about just yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, 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 it's interesting because this film presents itself in such a raw way where this is it. These, this is the culture clash. This is what the family wants to do. 
And as an audience member, even just me watching this film a year later, Mm -hmm. I walk away with a different feeling. It's interesting. Yeah, and I, I think it comes back to what this film does. Is it you know it starts very early on with the diagnosis of the grandma. Mm. You know she's with her sister, and her sister finds out that she's got this you know this cancer. I think lung cancer was it. I or? think it was. Yeah. Um, and her reaction is quite stoic. Um, in presentation, she's very. She's kind of processing the information. She is. You know, she becomes upset, but she knows what she has to do. She needs to keep the straight face and just tell her sister that there's nothing wrong with her. It's just mm. a checkup. It's just a phase. And it's interesting how deadpan she delivers this very dire news because it's a cultural thing. And obviously, particularly her sister, who is very much just like her embedded in this culture, um, her um, cracks in sort of her emotional armor are far less visible than obviously if we go down the generations it becomes tougher for them to conceal mm. their emotions because it's become a thing that's become culturally less and less you know it's become their their families become more westernized the further you go down the chain yeah so, well even just and i mean that's the thing we see over here all the time is older generations being a little more tough and thick-skinned and, and well, sticking to their morals. from their emotions. Yeah, their original ethical and moral family beliefs. Mm. They're more traditional in that sense. And uh, particularly as the film unwinds all the way up to that last shot, we do see the cracks, not just from Aquafina's westernised family, but from those who are embedded in the culture, particularly from the, the cousin who gets married, who has a breakdown, at the, or mm. um, Aquafina's uh, uncle, who has a breakdown at the wedding. Yeah. Um, and is trying to pass it off like he's uh, giving this speech for his son who's getting married, but it's obviously got, you know, we as the audience know that subtext is not true. Yeah, that's it, it, something I noticed as well is like the little cracks in, in, in regards to their age and where they grew up. And I'm pretty sure the only uh, people in that family who grew up in, in New York or, or were in New York at all was, was uh, Billy and, and her parents. Um, but they're pretty strict as well. And there's a great scene where um, Billy's talking to her mum and she's talking about, you know, oh, I feel sad too, but, you know, I don't want to cry at the wedding because I don't want people to see that. But I also don't want people to think I'm not sad about my mum's death mm-hmm. because I'm not crying. You know, th- those conversations happen throughout the whole film. And that was, mm-hmm. again, I think I, when I first saw the film, I thought some of the dialogue was a little on the nose and, too obvious. I rewatched the film today. I'm like, the the script is excellent. Yeah, excellent, excellent script. There's no one scene that doesn't tackle these ideas in such a great way. It's an immensely grounded family drama, and it feels mm. real. And I think that's yeah. why one of its biggest strengths, for sure. Um, and I don't. I think that's one of yeah, definitely the thing that I always take away from it. And on my second viewing, it was the same thing I took away. I really enjoy the family family sort of debate that happens throughout the film yeah it's and constant i made a joke about how much they eat just so mm. many like dinner lunch scenes they have yeah <laughs> but i guess that's part of, that's part of the culture is they're always eating they're always together and having these conversations is there anything you'd like to touch on um always any? seek always. yes <laughs> now well, um while i'm on this topic i want to talk a bit about um the scene where they're talking and they get into the idea of of nationalism or the fact that 
um, I think it's it's Billy's dad. He says, "Oh, well, you know, my passport says I'm an I'm an American, so I'm an American." And then you have the guy sitting next to him saying, "Like, I don't care what my passport says. I'm, you know, I was born in China. I'm I'm Chinese. That is my that's where I come from." And I thought that was, I mean, again, it's just one of those. Maybe that's why I said in the first place, like, "Oh, the dialogue's a bit on the nose." It's like, mm. no, I, I don't think so because the film is so focused and dedicated to that discussion. I think that's mm. what this film is about in a lot of ways. Um, well, you can't escape your family heritage. Yeah, well, exactly. And I and I tied it again to to my Portuguese backdrop <clears throat> in the sense that you know I was born in Australia. I guess you could argue my second generation Australian because both my parents were born in Australia, but there's full Portuguese blood in me because both of their parents are Portuguese, and it just sort of trickles down. And, and, and it's like I don't think there is an Australian above me in the generational tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but does that make me Australian or does that make me Portuguese or how, what's the percentage there? What's the ratio? When's the line? Yeah. And like uh, I, even though I don't come from a Chinese background, just having a different sort of nationality and brood in my family history, it just, it hits those notes so well. And I found yeah. that really, really interesting. Um, all right. There's a, there's another detail I really like talking about the screenwriting stuff um, you talked a bit about like the ensemble, the family as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think they're really great. I love the detail that um, the two that are getting married, this fake wedding, they've only been dating for three months. So mm-hmm. even though there's never a scene where they talk about it, but they're always so awkward and like uh, they have to get told to be all touchy and lovely yeah. and stuff. Um, I kind of like that that's like a subdued thing of their character that's always brought mm-hmm. up. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that was fun. But yeah, no, um, this one's really great from that from that wider sense. It, it's funny because it's direction. Like I said, I don't see anyone else making a film like this. It feels like her kind of film. And I remember I didn't have time to rewatch it, but I think she did one of those videos where you know she sits down with a pen and goes mm-hmm. through a scene. Uh, or it was the script. She was going through the script, the screenplay. And I think she was talking about how surprised she was at the creative freedom that she was given. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, she's done a lot of shorts. This is her second feature. And I think she was so used to not having that creative control. Yeah. Like producers and, and distributor heads and that saying, oh, you have to change this, you have to do that. And I I don't know. I'm, just, I'm really glad that she got to have that authentic voice. And it's, really it's honestly, it's a really impressive directorial performance. Some of the mm. performances are easily some of the most strongest parts of the film and don't really think there's really a weak link in there at all. No. I can't the, think of one off the top of my head, so. There's no one that's like, ah, oh, that's a bad performance. No. Like, they all really work off each other. Yeah, and everyone really gets well. a moment, which I mm. find is immensely impressive with an ensemble cast to give everyone a moment that you can pinpoint as something that's contributing to this overarching narrative while still exploring those kind of cultural family dynamics that Western audience people wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have comprehended prior to this. Mm. No, I definitely agree. I mean, mm. and my favorite moment, if we're talking about moments is Aquafina gets the one. I think it's when they're looking for the, like an earring on the floor. And that's the moment where she just finally, she breaks down and she's crying and, we sort of get her perspective on it where it's not even about just the moral side of it. It's she has a history and a reason why she wants to, to tell her grandmother this, that, yeah. she, that she is dying. And it all goes back to, I think it's her grandfather that 
she wasn't told that he was dying mm-hmm. and it was almost taken away and she calls it like a vanishing. He just vanished and she was never told prior. And I mean, in terms of a performance, that's a really great moment um, because she's so natural up until that point, but that's the moment where she gets to have a little bit of a monologue and a yeah, absolutely. really shine. Yeah, I think this is definitely, for me, this is a real proving ground performance for her and I'm really hoping she... Steps away from those comedy roles because she's in a lot of those comedy roles mm. and pushes more into melodrama because she's definitely got the range and the depth to be doing that stuff. Uh, much as I like, I find her quite funny and right. um, I would like to see her push more into these roles. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else you would like to know, Jake? <laughs> you really want to jump into these, these highlight scenes, No, eh? I just like, you know, you've always got a set of notes there ready to go, mate. No, that's so, fair enough. Um, this is just me throwing it over to you, mate. No, that's fair enough. You're driving this ship. Well, I'll I'll talk a bit about one of the details I noticed this time around. Okay. Um, that again, we talk about uh, Billy as as she's more of the Western representation. She's the one that always wants to tell, and I love that. That is the driving question throughout the film: is is she going to slip and tell her grandmother? Yeah. But what I loved is I started picking up on things throughout the film where it's like she's doing the same thing as the rest of her family doing, just on a smaller level. First time this happens is when she opens up the letter and it says, like, she didn't get into... I guess it's like a university or a a course or something. It's called the fellowship. She didn't get into the fellowship. Mm -hmm. And she's on the phone, you know, with her nan, and she says, like, oh, uh, nothing. Like, I'm fine. And then even further on, like, oh, um, are you hungry? Do you need help with money? No, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. And that's a constant theme where it's like, she's doing the same thing. She's lying to take away the burden from mm-hmm. these uh, from the other people around her. And yeah. it, it seems like a smaller scale thing, but I was one of these, I was like, wow, this film is just punching you over and over and over again with this yeah. thing. I know, it was very clever. Yeah, I find um, that's an interesting character point to pick up. I didn't notice that before. Yeah. Um, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> me, me picking up on um, stuff. I think the only other thing I'd like to touch on maybe is the cinematography. Mm. Um, I think uh, there's quite a few. Uh, it's very wide, a lot of it. Maybe that's to capture a lot of the, the family sort of dynamic. Nothing too ultra wide. I think it's probably mostly between that 24 to 35 range. Um, mostly trying to be grounded realism sort of stuff, which... Um, but a lot of those shots where all the family are walking down the street mm. um, and stuff, that's really wide and slightly distorted around the edges. And I found that stuff really interesting. Um, some of the lighting I found was immensely impressive. The use of those yellows and stuff mm-hmm. and particularly the scenes with smoking and stuff with the, the father. I found those amazingly lit scenes mm. um, that were quite dark and broody. Um, that's all I pretty much had to note from that no nah, it's fair enough i think you're you're probably right on the money with the framing just because there's so many characters yeah that they do want to keep it sort of at least medium wide or wide uh to get everyone in the shot because they are it is a showcase for this ensemble of characters it yeah. is a family so yeah. i mean if you look at the poster it's not aquafina with a grandma it's the whole cast no exactly and even even today's um the thumbnail for this episode it, it would have been uh, for like the whole family together in front. I only picked the two because, frankly, it was the only one that fit a one to one ratio well enough. Uh, I put a fair. lot of effort into those thumbnails, like I know. Um, but no, I agree with you. I think that's sort of why you're getting those whites, and and the camera does hold on for a long time. I mean, the scene when they're um they're doing the exercise, yeah, and that's a great like shot of a tone or even you know a scene where Alcafine is slowly getting more into it. 
doing the ha ha. Well, it's about letting go. And yeah, obviously exactly. it comes back to a lot of the the strongest elements of this film is the objective discourse versus the subjective discourse. The fact that the family know and the grandma doesn't know. It adds a whole different layer to every single scene we see with the grandma and particularly grandma and Aquafina, because obviously they're getting two different things out of that exercise. We as the viewer are getting two different levels of context. Yeah. I mean, it, it's exactly right. And on top of that, it is like the relationship bonding. Not that they need mm. to like, you know, that's not the arc is to build a relationship, but that moment is there because you're right. We've got that context going in. It's of, actually letting go of the relationship, in a way, yeah. Because yeah. you're right. That's sort of what the the, the meditation she's doing, if you will. Mm. That's what that is. But in terms of the way that's shot, it is. It's one take. It there's so much headroom. I I was funny because I was watching this with subtitles that I, I don't know on if like the DVD, for example. And I'm really annoyed by that. By the way, there isn't. I can't find a Blu-ray locally of this. Um, but the subtitles were all fixed to the bottom of the screen. They never like shifted upwards. And there were several scenes where, because there's so much headroom, the subtitles are literally blocking their faces, mm. which I thought was funny. I was like, damn it. I don't like this. Um, but yeah, just the boldness to, to stay on that shot, let the performances speak for themselves. I, I, w- I was very impressed with the cinematography as well. I thought it was great. No worries. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um... I yeah, I guess we can jump into highlight scenes because it sort of goes into the next thing. Well, you tell me what was your highlight scene, Zeke, for the farewell. Um, whew, I would say my highlight scene's probably the sequence at the wedding. I think that there's a that gives a lot of people, particularly like you were talking about the two that are rushed into this fake marriage. It gives him, who is uh, a mute character for the most part, the the cousin character. It gives him a moment when he has a breakdown in the in the bathroom and has to be comforted, mm. um, and it's short of that. To me, was the moment where we start to see that bridge of cultural effects, like affection, like they were both affected by this decision and sort of the impact on youth and letting go of these sort of mentor characters. And I think that that for us as the Western audience through Aquafina, we're finally bridged to the. It was the final connection between the two. Um, of this real conflict that it's not just Aquafina who's having this problem with uh, who's going to crack. It's actually the whole family's being affected now. Right. Um, and I found my voice really is gone. Yeah. <laughs> so what about you, Jake, before you run out of a voice? Um, yeah, no, I think ultimately my highlight scene, um, you know what, you know what I would say? It's probably the, the photo shoot with the couple. And this actually goes almost completely back to the cinematography mm. is that it's, it's sort of a montage of all of these shots of the couple in the background having these um, these photos taken of them. But in the forefront, we're having these conversations between Billy and, and her nan. Uh, and it's they're almost completely separated thematically. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it, the way it's shot is exactly what the story is, where this fake wedding that's happening is just the backdrop for the real story. Which is the relationship mm. in the forefront? It's, um, of the it's um, the the mission scene in this film is excellent. Yeah, no, it, that that is just master directing, uh. right there. Um, I think that's actually one of the scenes that um, Lulu went actually talks about in her screenplay video. She actually talks about some of the dialogue changes from draft to draft. Um, I can't remember which, like, it's on YouTube. I saw it like a year ago, so I'm mm. vaguely remembering this, but um, that is his masterclass mm. and and. More of a shot shout out, but and again, this is another detail I noticed the second time around. 
is the shot towards the end when it's just after Billy has run to grab the medical uh, results. Mm-hmm. She sort of, with that act, she sort of cements her place in we're going to keep the secret uh, by offering to run out and try and get it before people would find out. And it cuts to this sort of slow motion shot of the whole family walking to camera. And you sort of already mentioned the shot, but um, especially the first time I watched this film, I don't know what it was, whether it was like the music or just its placement in the film where they put that shot towards mm-hmm. the end. Just really, it's a goosebumps. Yeah. It just really moved me. I was like, this is, I, I don't know what it is about the scene, but it's really just encapsulated everything that this film is talking about yeah. in this one shot. And it's even juxtaposed with a shot early in the film with Aquafina in slow motion walking towards the camera by herself. Hmm. I think that leads into the scene where she finds her dad smoking. And, I, oh, my God. I This film's great. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> farewell. Film. I'm looking very much forward to whatever Lulu Wang puts out next. Oh, um, um, quickly before we move on. No worries. We teased the ending before we yes. got the spoilers. We should quickly say... I, um, when I first saw this film, and it ends with the real... The driving off? Uh, no, not even that. I mean, that's emotionally mm-hmm. wrecking as well when she's crying the goodbye. But the, I'm talking about the very last shot when it comes up with the real-life character this is based yeah. on. It says, six years on, she's still alive. When I first saw this film, I hated that. I was like, this ruins the film for me because it takes away from the what it was talking about. I rewatching this, I'm on a, I'm on a different mindset. Complete Be- coin flip. Because it sort of says that everything they did was right. Yeah. Because because the whole thing is mm. that she tells she dies. Basically, that's the yeah, sort of that's, that's the little the, that's the belief. Um, oh, there you go. Look at that. So if anything, but uh, obviously with this film coming out, you would argue that then she is finding out potentially. Um, but I feel like, but yeah, no, obviously yeah. it's a fascinating cause then it, it adds a whole other element of cultural grounding. Mm. So, um, I think that whole last sequence with the farewell, the physical farewell as the car's driving off and we're watching Aquafina break down and then cutting to black and seeing that, that photo is, it's just an incredible, it's an incredible send off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had, it's a, a goosebumps ending. It is. I had a, I had definitely a different mindset about it. Cause I got, I guess I thought the film was about one thing. Yeah. When I first watched it, it was, it was a relationship between, you know, a, a, a grandchild and a, and a grandmother. And I guess I was expecting the ending to be a statement of, you know, checking on, checking on your, your Mima, your grandma. And you're right. Now I didn't think about that as a quote. That is a literal quote from the film. Is it's not the cancer that kills you; it's the fear. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, it. I think I realized it hits on a different level when you realize it's not taken for granted, but she's still here. Yeah. So I, I wanted to point that out. Completely different ways of thinking between two viewings of this film. That's why I like this podcast, Zeke. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Well, the farewell is currently out in wide release. I'm not sure if it's on any streaming platforms. Uh, it's Jake. on Prime. Amazon Prime. Well, Jake, you've Prime. been getting your. The, your milk of that prime, haven't well, you? Well, I've I've since gotten rid of Prime and um, the Doc Play. Well, there we go. I I wanted to keep them, but then I just had to look at my bank account, and then I was like, yeah, and no, I'll get rid of these. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Well, uh, let's speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what is new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Uh, fair few things this week, Zeke. 
On Stan this week, you got Boy, the film from the film from Taika Waititi. It's a very great film. Uh, you got Flash Gordon, uh, Sweet Country, which is already on Netflix, but hey, it's on both now, I guess. Uh, and Jacob's Ladder. Now, I can't tell you uh, which Jacob's Ladder. It could be the 1990 horror film. It could be the 2019 remake that has a 4% Rotten Tomatoes score. I don't know. It's one of those two. <laughs> <laughs> um, on Disney+, Plus, you have Godmothered, which sees an inexperienced uh, fairy godmother in training, tries to prove that people still need fairy godmothers. And I watched the trailer. It reminded me a bit of Enchanted with Amy Adams. Intriguing. Way back in the day. Also, uh, <laughs> we've been talking about this from all years, Zeke. It finally comes to normal paying subscribers on Disney+. Plus. Mulan, the live action version, is now this week mm. going to be free to watch. Another streaming. film that was critically panned this year. If yeah, I, I think I'm finally going to watch it. I, just, I want to be in that conversation. Uh, in terms of classics, uh, if you go to Hoyts this week, you can catch Home Alone, Mamma Mia, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, at Luna, you can see Amelie on the big screen from December 4th, which that is a brilliant foreign mm-hmm. film, probably one of the best ever made. Um, so I reckon you check that out. Now, see, this is a bit of a crossbreed between classic and new. Okay. It's a re-edit of a classic film mm-hmm. from Mr. Francis Ford Coppola himself, The Godfather Part 3, or... The new title, The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, is out in Luna this week. Very intriguing. No so, spoilers there. <laughs> well, apparently that was the title they wanted to do from the very beginning. Why wouldn't you just do part three? I don't know. I Look, I, I, I'm going to agree with you. but Francis Ford Coppola doing a re-edit. What? <laughs> well, apparently this is really good. It's sub, it's sub three hours. Well, as someone who has not seen part two or part three, mm. I will probably have to maybe even potentially catch that. Yeah, well, it, it um apparently it fixes uh Sofia Coppola's performance because very intriguing. One, one of the main through lines of that third film is that people hated her in that film, mm. um and I agree she was not good in it. She's a great director. Must have been <laughs> lost in translation. Ah, uh, uh, and finally, new to cinemas, the BGS. How you can mend, how can you mend a broken heart, which chronicles the rise of the iconic group consisting of brothers Barry. Uh, Maurice and Robin Gibb, their music and its evolution over the years. No worries. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show. We are moving into episode 99. But, Jake, what are we watching? Well, we are watching something that's new. That is true. Next week on the show, we're watching Mank. Mank? It's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. 1930s Hollywood is re-evaluated through the eyes of scathing wit and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Markowitz as he races to finish Citizen Kane. Mm. So you talked a little bit about this last week on the show. Was it? Yeah. No, you're right. I think it was last week. Last week on the show. Yeah. This is the latest film from David Fincher, and obviously the screenplay was written by his late father. Mm. Um, yeah, we obviously didn't. We held off on talking about it too much because obviously we knew we were doing it for episode 99, the prelude to our century. A century. Yeah. Um, I'm very keen to watch this. This is new to Netflix this week. Uh, Jake, you've let us in on a little bit of your insight, but hopefully you'll be able to give us more next week on the yeah, show. Yeah, I'll definitely rewatch it when it comes to Netflix and... And uh, fine-tune my thoughts on the film. But uh, it'll be interesting. I think just before we wrap, I think now's a good time. And we're going to announce this like publicly off the air as well, I reckon. A little later in the week. Yeah, for sure. But um, Might as well touch on it 
starting here. Yeah, exactly. So now, now that episode ninety nine is announced. You guys know all of the films from episode one to ninety nine that we have put in our main review section, if you will, our mm-hmm. main films of the week. For episode one hundred, uh, which I mean, we wouldn't have announced it anyway until next Monday. No, uh, but uh, we're calling it right now. Uh, we're going to start up a little competition in celebration of episode First 100. First ever competition. Yeah. So if you, the audience, can guess what the film of the week will be for episode 100, then you will be given a little gift personally from us, at least two Blu-rays. I shouldn't say at least. Two only. <laughs> yes. Two Blu-rays or the equivalent, because mm-hmm. not every film we talked about is out on Blu-ray or DVD yet. Uh, but you'll be able to pick out of any of the 100 episodes, main films of the week that we've done, and uh, we'll give you two of your selected choices Mm. on home release, whatever's available. For For the first person that gives us the answer correctly. First person, exactly. Two of the 100. Yeah, because you never know. Someone might might get multiple people, get it right. Um, For example, like we can't give you Ammonite on Blu-ray because Mm. it doesn't exist yet. We can't give you Baby Teeth on Blu-ray because that doesn't exist. We'll give you a DVD. Yes. Um, but, of course, that's something we'll discuss further with the winner. Mm. Um, but we're officially putting that competition out there. Yeah. We'll um, release a little video on Instagram, too, later in the week. Yeah, for sure. It's um, going to be very good. No worries. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Mank. <laughs>